Hello, and welcome to the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast, where together we explore ways to help you optimize your health and achieve sustainable well being. No one deserves to live an unhealthy life because they are overtasked, overstimulated, and overwhelmed. I'm your co host, Dr. Laura Hayes, and we'll be joined by Dr. Parker Hayes as we explore new perspectives and strategies rooted in self awareness, deep connections, and science based practices designed to create lasting impact for you and those around you. Please keep in mind this podcast is for the purpose of education, introspection, and community connection and should not be mistaken for medical advice. Be sure to subscribe and share with others. Let's be well together. Hello, and welcome to Lasting Impact Wellness, the podcast that helps you optimize your health and well-being through science-based practices, practical knowledge, and honest discussions. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Hayes, and today we'll be joined by my co-host and partner, Dr. Parker Hayes. Hello, everyone. As you may know, if you listen to our trailer, Parker and I have spent years on the front lines of emergency medicine, and we've both been in leadership roles throughout our careers. So in today's episode, we're going to share with you some of the leadership lessons we've learned and adopted over years of practicing in an environment of what many refer to as controlled chaos. And even if you don't work in medicine or you've never stepped foot in an emergency department, you have your own versions of chaos. And we hope that by sharing our experiences, you too can find a way to control it and not let it control you. There are definitely days that I think there aren't any people who have never stepped foot in an emergency department. (laughs) That's true. Why would we be doing this? Frankly, we work in a place that is nuts. It's high stress. It's high stakes. But it also doesn't tolerate inexactitude of decision making. We need to be consistently correct. And we don't do it alone. By definition, we are always leading a team in the emergency department, shift by shift, or as a department or enterprise. And we've learned a lot about leading people in doing so. Some of it has been by trial and error. In fact, as an aside, I think many leaders receive precious little formal training in leading and learn mostly by trial and error. So we offer some of our lessons learned in hopes of helping others. And no matter what type of leader you may be, what titles or roles you serve, regardless of what your environment or your audience looks like, there's always something we can learn from each other. So let's dive in. Parker, are you ready to get rolling? Let's do it. All right. I'm actually going to ask you to introduce the first lesson, please. All right. So the first lesson heading for us is setting the tone. Laura, one of the things you always espoused when you are leading our department over these last few years is the notion that how you show up matters. It's definitely something I've always believed in, too, not only at work, but also at home and in other places. And I would reiterate what you said earlier, that the term leader applies broadly here. One doesn't have to be the CEO of a major organization to be a leader. You are a leader in the room with your children. You are a leader when you're interacting with others of similar direction. We're leaders in a whole variety of arenas in life. Mm -hmm, For sure. Essentially, everywhere you go, you have the opportunity for influence. And as a leader, you set the tone for your team, your organization, how you behave, what you say, your attitude, and the energy around you can really influence the way people around you will behave. And then in turn, how the events around you will ultimately unfold. And this is a component of intentional leadership. And for me, it's a fundamental component. It starts with showing up with your A-game, so to speak. 
And even in times where you don't feel like you're on your A game, maybe you're not in the mood to go to work or you have other stuff you feel like doing, it's important to still show up with your best foot forward and acknowledge the impact of your words and your actions and have more of a global awareness of how others perceive you. And if I can borrow from my own life or our own experience in the emergency department, you mentioned, yes, it's a high stress environment. It's noisy, overstimulating, it's emotionally charged. So I know that when I show up to a shift, I need to let go of the other stuff, all the stuff that came before, the stuff that's going to happen after. I need to let go of that temporarily. And when I walk through the doors of the ambulance bay and into the department, I've got to be ready to go. I'm on. Let's do it. Head down, ready to work. Here I am. My great father used to say, keep your nose to the grindstone. Exactly. And again, it's all about setting the tone. We can think of people in our lives. I'm sure everybody listening can think of somebody at their work who, you know, that negative Nelly or the Debbie Downer who shows up to work and immediately as they walk in the door, the whole energy shifts. People get sucked into that heaviness and that negativity and too much of that can make for a toxic environment. And I'm not implying that we don't have bad days or hard things that we're dealing with. Certainly, we all do. But we all have a choice to shift our mindset. And again, it's about acknowledging how contagious we all are. And I think you're a good example of this, Parker. I mean, what do you say every time someone asks you, hey, Dr. Hayes, how are you? (laughs) This is the greatest day of my life. And you know, I love when you say that, but sometimes it does drive me crazy because I think, really, Parker, how can this possibly be the best day of your life? But I get it. And I understand why you do that. But maybe you should elaborate a little bit because I think it's important to kind of describe to the listeners why you say that so much. Well, first of all, I always figure I'm six feet up instead of six feet down, which is which is great. Yes. I say it because it makes me believe, and I think it may make other people believe too, uh, about a spirit of positivity. If you can convince yourself that your trajectory is always going up and you are going forward, then you're more likely to self-actualize that. I think it affects other people that way too. A minute ago, you mentioned the word contagious and I perked up. If there's one thing that we have learned a lot about, especially in recent years, it's infectious disease. And the concepts of contagiousness and the epidemiology of exponential spread Well, do you know what else is contagious besides infectious disease? Attitude. Negative attitude can spread, not just afflicting the person who suffers from it, but to the people around them, who then give it to the people around them, who give it to the people at home, and so on and so on, until you've got real trouble on your hands and large case numbers. The good news is, that positive attitudes spread just as readily and can be durable. They can be a long-lasting condition. So I figure I start every day with that kind of tone and do my best to display it in hopes that it may spread locally and maybe even exponentially. Yeah, that's great. I love the way you explain that, actually. And You know, really, a lot of this comes down to self-awareness. We're going to have entire podcast episodes dedicated to that. But self-awareness, expanded awareness, really a lot of it is understanding how your words, not just what you say, but how you say them and your actions impact the world around you at any given time. I might interrupt to offer a sub-lesson here, and that is the concept of letting others lead when it's safe. If you set the tone of confidence and positive direction, 
you're going to enable would-be leaders to find those skills and abilities in themselves much more readily. Medicine and emergency medicine in particular is really fertile ground for this kind of mentorship and experience. There are countless tasks that Honestly, as a longtime practitioner, man, I can knock that out right now. I could suture that up fast. I could get this patient intubated. I could do this. And I'm confident that I could do it safely. And we're under time pressure. But I have a resident or a medical student or someone else there who is attempting to learn that skill. And when it is not directly compromising the mission or the safety for that patient, allowing the person to be hands-on to assume the role of leader and acquire those skills serves not only them, but it also serves your organization. It helps with succession planning to train leaders on a regular task-by-task basis. So setting the tone also includes allowing others to lead when it's safe. Well, along that notion of leading by example, if you're allowing others to take the lead, then you also free up some time for yourself. I think a lot of us run into that habit of saying yes to everything, or we get in that mindset of, well, if I do it, I know it'll be done right, or, well, let me just do this because it'll just get done, it'll be quicker. But if we can shift that and maybe delegate or train others and allow them to lead in certain times, then it frees us up a bit too. And maybe that takes one less task off of our list, which is good. No, I think it's it's fair to say that abdication of responsibility is not entirely an altruistic endeavor. For sure. All right, let's move on to our next lesson. So the next lesson is, wow, something that's probably our biggest lesson that we've gleaned from practicing like we do, and that's keeping calm under pressure. I'd say the most common question we get asked as emergency physicians is, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen? I'm sure I've been asked that in the last 48 hours. <laughs> exactly. And We've probably ruined a few dinner conversations or grossed out some friends by our stories, but we can save that for some private conversations. I think our children are immune to that, however. <laughs> Let's hope that they are. But again, another question that we get asked often is, you know, how do you deal with all of that stress? How do you stay calm? And that's certainly a learned skill. I think there are some personality traits that lend a little bit better toward remaining calm under pressure, but it's something that we can all work on. Why is it important? Well, I'll I'll use myself as an example. When I'm in a high-stress situation, let's say a patient is in total crisis, they're in cardiac arrest, or they're choking, they're hemorrhaging. In order for me to do my job, I need to think clearly. I have to quickly assess the situation, be prepared for any unexpected twist, and then respond with direct action instead of just frantically reacting. I mean, we've seen examples of people who show up that way acting frantic and it makes the whole situation seem that much more stressful and that much more chaotic. So I know that the more calm I am in those situations, the better able I am to execute each of the steps that I need to do and then ultimately set the tone for the other members of my team to do the same. Well, honestly, Laura, you're famous for that. I walk into shifts and staff tell me, oh, she's got this pilot voice, this super calming presence in the room. And then I have to live up to that on the next shift. (laughs) Please. Speaking of which, have you have you ever heard the clip of Captain Sullenberger, the U.S. air pilot, informing the tower that he was going to have to land the plane in the Hudson River? And they had no other option. It doesn't consist of a lot of words like I'm using to say it. It's the tone. It's his dispassionate matter-of-factness. And to me, it has always been so emblematic of the fact that this guy not only 
had super expertise, but ice water in his veins and the ability to not accelerate the situation with unneeded panic in his voice. It's a classic example. Let, let me see if I can play this very quickly. For clarification, there's already been some dialogue back and forth between the pilot and air traffic control trying to find a runway for him to land this completely disabled aircraft. Did you need assistance? Uh, yes, he, uh, it was a bird strike. Can I get him in for uh, runway one? Runway one, that's good. Can I get 1529, turn right 280, can you land runway right. one at Teterboro? We can't do it. Okay, which runway would you like at Teterboro? We're going to be in the Hudson. And the captain says, we can't do it. We're going to be in the Hudson. Well, metaphorically, sometimes we know we are going to be in the Hudson. When you are going to be in the Hudson, not adding fuel to that fire of panic is a critical thing. And it's done by tone. It's done by demeanor. And it's done through speech. Keeping calm under pressure in many ways is about portraying calm under pressure. I definitely am not going to sit here and say with all honesty that when I am attempting to portray that calm mode, I'm calm on the inside as well, because that's certainly not the case. So how do you do it? For our listeners, Laura, we can't just keep telling them, hey, you've got to stay calm under pressure. Give some examples. What, what do you do to remain calm when you're faced with these situations? What is your ritual, if you will? Well, I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. Okay, deal. <laughs> I bet they're actually pretty similar. When I'm coming into a really intense situation, the scenario that comes to mind would be someone arriving in cardiac arrest or, God forbid, the pediatric arrest patient or something like that. But a situation that I know is going to be very stressful and chaotic and emotionally charged the first step is recognizing how that surge of adrenaline is manifesting in my body and then managing it efficiently so that I can do my job and command the room so that others can do theirs. So for me, that looks like my heart starting to beat a little bit faster. I often get goosebumps, head to toe, kind of uncontrollable goosebumps, almost chills where sometimes my teeth will even start to chatter a little and my stomach will start to get crampy. And to me, that's the signal that my stress response is turning on. That's the signal that I need to, I got to get my shit together, honestly, if I'm going to control this room in this situation. And oftentimes at that point, I'll start taking some slow, controlled, deliberate, deep breaths, which in turn starts to stimulate my parasympathetic nervous system. And then that calms me down internally pretty quickly. It allows me to start to prepare and think ahead and make sure I've got all the equipment that I need. I can communicate effectively with my teammates and set the environment up for success. And with practice, I mean, it's definitely an ongoing practice for sure, but I'm able to stay calm amidst that sheer craziness that's happening all around me. So I guess to summarize for me, it's a lot about breath work and mental preparation. Now, it'd be great if it all happened that smoothly each time in real life, <laughs> which it doesn't, but that's, that's what I do. So how about you? A mentor of mine, Dr. John Marks, drew this graph when we were having this conversation some years ago. You and I were talking about this topic recently as well, and it's a little hard to describe the graph verbally, but basically it's very simple. The x-axis is the energy, but really it means the chaos or the noise level of the department. And the y-axis 
is the noise or chaos or energy portrayal by the leader or the attending. And the curves start out in different places, one high, one low, but then they would cross each other and go on in the opposite directions. So that on average, through the middle of it was a a dotted line of effectiveness and function for the department. In other words, when the place was nuts, the leader adopts a greater position of calm and a, a position of less noise, less wasted energy. And when the place needed some picking up or the people need to get a little more riled up, your staff, and it was a little too slow, not much was happening fast enough, the leader needed a different posture, perhaps one of greater energy portrayal. And a second major source of instruction for me in terms of remaining calm under pressure has come from the patients and their families. Countless times I'm in awe and marvel at how people accept news, accept pain, manage the difficulties of their family and loved ones' situations under the pressure cooker of sudden emergency department conditions. On essentially no notice, they are able to summon a ritual that works for them, evidently, and exhibit it to me. And I'm hopeful that I have taken some lessons from them. So personally, when that scenario is about to come into the department for me, my ritual includes being aware of the position of my body, my posture, my place in the room, so that it doesn't have to be any more exciting to the room than the situation already dictates. The first thing I do is I get out of the way. I find myself in a place where I can see what's going on and will be able to offer direction But I don't necessarily need to be moving around a lot actively or raising my voice. I go through a ritual of breath and visualization as well, as you described, and I try to visualize the first steps. As long as I know what the first ones are, I feel like the rest of it is going to happen. This reminds me of another analogy I might use, which is when I step on stage, when I was performing with a band or for public speaking, or lecturing events, you've got to know the first line of the song. And if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. Fortunately, I would always be able to turn to my friend Eck, and he would know the first line of the song, as well as all of his guitar parts. And But back to it. You, you better stand there looking like you know the first line of the song, and then visualize it if you want it to come to you. If you start thrashing and have psychomotor agitation, you are not going to help yourself remember. You are going to spread that panic elsewhere. So as the body controls the mind and vice versa, I try to physically change myself to a position of calm, even if I'm not. I mean, I I don't lie down and take a nap, but I have found that if I physically change the position of my body into a state of relative repose by sitting down in the room, ready to arise when the patient rolls in, that it has a calming effect on my mind without decreasing the acuity of my listening ability or thinking. In fact, it improves my visualization and improves my overall performance in the immediate aftermath. Right. And the take home point here is just recognizing when that surge comes on or that trigger arises, when you start to get into that intense fight or flight mode, and then figuring out a little ritual that works for you. 
So whether that's deep breathing exercises. Or visualization. Yes, or being prepared, knowing those first steps, whatever it may be. The lesson is recognizing your trigger, interpreting it, and then having a ritual that you can perform consistently that helps you remain calm. That's going to be the thing that is everlasting in those types of situations. Well, you mentioned being prepared in there, and that brings us to the next lesson, which is prepare for the worst case scenario. We talk about that because there's a lesson there from emergency medicine. We are trying to always think of the worst thing. We look for the life threats. But you can't let the whole place go to hell because you're always thinking about the worst case scenario. So at once, you have to be prepared for the worst while continuing to let the non-worst get processed appropriately. I would introduce two terms here, exigency and contingency. I think most people know what contingency is. In this case, it's things that might happen. Exigency governs emergency medicine. It is things that are happening now that demand immediate attention. That's exigency, and that is the nature of what we do. There are things that have to be done right now. Well, that extends to all kinds of organizations, businesses, schools, etc. One's own task list is full of exigency already, or we have them foisted upon us. And we definitely have learned in our industry that we have to deal with those things first. But at the same time, toggling to consideration of contingencies, preparing for the next patient, preparing to restock the room, thinking of things that might happen at the same time is also critical. When I was a line cook at a decent restaurant when I was a high school kid, I had to handle the rush of busy orders and a barking supervisor And those are the orders that needed to be produced right now. But you also had to constantly wipe down, clean, restock your station. Learning to toggle between exigency and contingency, it's a multi-industry phenomenon. And I'll interrupt by adding that there are some lessons and application to parenting as well. I mean, there are things that have to be done right now, but... There are also things that we need to be prepared for. For example, we need to make sure we have flashlights and batteries in case we have a power outage, or we need to have a plan in case of a fire. But we also need to make sure that the lunches are ready, and we need to be prepared to pick our kids up from school and so on and so forth. Part of that is actual imagining of specific steps and movements that will occur using the concepts of visualization as part of preparing for the worst case scenario. You know, when I know someone who's about to go travel in the third world, I'm fond of jokingly saying, well, make a definite plan for what you want to do when you're traveling, because then at least you'll know one thing that is absolutely not going to happen. Besides the humor there, there is utility in the steps of making a plan for what could happen or a scenario Because however unlikely it may be to actually occur, that will give you an idea of the steps that you might need to to plan for the contingencies of the matter. So there are lessons everywhere, but in emergency medicine, preparing for the worst case scenario while continuing to devote sufficient energy toward the contingencies as well is one of the grand ones. That's great. But I'd also add that 
we're not encouraging anyone to be so prepared that they become crippled with anxiety or fear, you know, so fearful of the worst case scenario that they become stagnant. But rather getting in the habit of knowing that you are prepared and feeling confident in your abilities to handle contingencies and in turn letting that be a way to decrease the stress that surrounds the situation instead of adding to it. Definitely. So that brings us to the next lesson, which is observing with all your senses. Great leaders are aware. From a self standpoint, as we've talked about in the first lesson, they are aware of their surroundings but in this case, using all the input sources that they have. In residency, we are taught to walk into a room and ask oneself, what do you see, smell, hear, and utilize all those sources to form an initial impression of the patient and problems before you. And that allows us as clinicians to pick up on subtle clues about the patient's health, yes, but their emotional state their social situation, and so many things. But more generally, it's about being present and aware, tuned in to what's happening around you, turning off autopilot mode, and being able to read the room, so to speak. Laura, I can't even imagine how many lectures you and I have been to. (laughs) Tons. But have you ever been in a conference and you're falling asleep or bored or fidgeting? <laughs> never, not once. No, not fact. once, never. never. <laughs> and never, like, say, even recently. <laughs> and you look around and about 90% of the audience is looking just like you. But the speaker waxes on in their speech instead of taking a quick exit from the script or spicing up their tone, involving the audience in some way to try to salvage this and recover their attention. Being aware of your surroundings and viewing the entirety of the situation with multiple senses offers one much greater chance at getting back on the rails towards an effective destination. For sure. And we could mention body language here too and its importance in communication, whether it's a professional interaction or a first date. It's so important to listen intently while also taking in the physical cues. So... I believe there are two kinds of listeners. There are listeners who are actively listening to obtain information. What did you say? What? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, here we go. (laughs) Do you see what I'm dealing with here, people? (laughs) Go on. There are two kinds of listeners. People who are actively intaking information, analyzing it, and deciding if they have a contribution. And there are people who are just waiting on their turn to speak. How many meetings have you been to where in some fashion it goes around the table and the latter kind of listener then chimes in with something potentially contributory but often tangential, but it's their axe to grind. Active listeners at the table are those that are analyzing the real flow of the meeting, the engagement, and offering constructively, but at the same time making sure when it's appropriate that their talking points that they hope to cover in that meeting are also clearly articulated. I know I've been guilty of this myself. I have caught myself for sure. I'm in a meeting thinking I am just waiting here to make my point. And I probably have missed useful information that I've let go by because I wasn't an active listener using all of my senses at the time. Well, and half the time when that occurs, by the time it actually becomes your turn, you don't even really feel like saying the thing that you 
had been waiting and anticipating that you might want to. Yeah, somehow it ceases to be so important. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So let's move on to our last lesson for today. And that is turning it off and letting things go. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about how we've learned to cope and recover from such a high energy, stressful job. This is one we've dealt with for a very long time. And just the other night in the emergency department, this is honestly within a week of making this podcast, Laura and I were working side by side in our emergency department where our shifts overlapped by a few hours. And we were managing two patients side by side. She had an older woman, female patient with a critical problem, a ruptured aorta. And next door, I had a male with a gunshot wound to the head. We were managing these patients simultaneously and each of us had a medical student with us. Afterwards, the medical students, early in their careers, both bright young guys, they had somewhat coat button eyes and were attempting very appropriately to process these situations from a humanistic standpoint. Somewhere in there, I looked at Laura and I thought she had a very different demeanor than that. In fact, I wondered maybe where she and I might be able to go to breakfast the next morning since I hadn't seen her practically in days. It doesn't make us shallow, callous people that. We're moving on from these situations and attempting to adapt in preparation for the next. It is part of a defense mechanism, yes, but it is also... It's the underpinning of strength that we're able to move on from stressful situations and not let them affect the next one too dramatically and certainly negatively. Well, that's a great example. But I also think being honest that you and I are very lucky that we have each other. I mean, I can think of a lot of people who are in relationships, couples who have completely different careers, or maybe one has a career in the traditional sense and the other's career is managing the family and the household. And people can have a hard time relating to one another. So I think we're really lucky in the sense that we each kind of get it. And I think that one of the things that helps us cope and recover is the fact that we can talk to each other about these things. Ironically, though, I think that makes it almost more important for certain couples to have intact compensatory mechanisms of turning off high stress situations and letting it go before they bring it home to people who don't understand it implicitly or work in a different industry or don't need to completely share the commonality like you and I might. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, one of my coping mechanisms or tactics is allowing myself some space and time after the stimulus, that stressful situation, the long work day. So for me, it's my commute. People ask me how long my commute is, and it's about an hour each way. And almost always when I respond with how long my commute is, I then say, well, but I actually enjoy that time to be able to decompress. And it's that decompression time that opens me up for recovery. I really believe that. I mean, oftentimes I listen to comedy podcasts on the way home or something that really just gives my body, my mind, and my emotional state some time to recover before I get home. So that's just one example that I use. And for other people, this could look like going for a brief walk or calling a friend after you leave your shift or your job. But regardless of what it looks like for you, the point is finding that ritual. Like we mentioned earlier, although this is a different type of ritual, but doing those things that help you decompress and help you let go of the stress that you may be carrying around with you Leave work behind. Try not to bring it home with you and bring it home to others. 
Okay, look, nobody has all this figured out. And we certainly don't pretend that we have cornered the market of knowledge about lessons from high-stress jobs and how to do them with durability. But summarizing some of our lessons from the front lines. First, set the tone. Show up with your A-game and realize its effect on others. Next, develop your own methods and rituals to keep calm under pressure. Third, actively prepare for the worst-case scenario, the exigencies, but also map out a plan for the contingencies simultaneously. Next, observe with all your senses. As a leader, feel the environment around you and be an active listener. And finally, take an inventory of what you're carrying with you and take the time to figure out ways to let it go and allow recovery if you ever want to experience growth. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. We hope to have imparted some of the lessons we've learned in our environment that you can extrapolate to yours. As always, thank you for your time and your energy. We welcome your insight, comments, and topic suggestions at info at lastingimpactwellness.com. We have some great episodes ahead, so please be sure to subscribe and share with others. Let's be well together.